it's wonderful to have you all here. Did you have a good 4th of July weekend? Yeah, I did. I decided to catch up on some reading. Started reading Roger Billings' book about hydrogen, and I just couldn't put it down. Just, it's lighter than air. Okay, but you, well, you know that hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe, but did you know that it's the smartest? All the other elements are more dense. So, okay, we're done. All right, well, now it's time to hear from someone who's never dense. It's Dr. John and the Technology Spotlight. Tonight, we're going to talk about the Martians. The little green men? No, no, not those Martians. We're going to talk about NASA's robots that they are sending to Mars. Did you know that NASA has two robots on the surface of Mars right now operating? Remember, there's the InSight, and I think the other one's Curiosity. And uh, really soon, they're going to launch their next mission to Mars. In fact, they're scheduled for July 30th. So that's really, really soon. And they're sending another rover to Mars that's a lot like the last one. You know, it's about the size of a golf cart or so, but it has some new instruments and things. Pretty exciting stuff. Here is the robot getting ready to get packaged up and put on the rocket. And you can see they changed the wheel a little bit to make it more durable because their last rover started getting holes in the wheels. And of course, they made a little ramp to play around on. Well, actually, that's to test it, I hope. <laughs> Who knows how much it costs. But, you know, if I was making a rover to send to Mars, I would want to, you know, test drive it, have a little fun, you know, uh, until I saw how slow it moves. <laughs> it's a pretty slow robot because, you know, when it's so far away, they don't need to go very fast, and they want to make sure they don't crash or anything. <laughs> so uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the neat new instruments that this rover is going to take. Uh, they're going to call it Perseverance. That's the new name that they assigned to it. If you take a look at this picture, you can see some of the different instruments. It has a really nice master cam on it that can zoom in really, really close, you know, so they can see things far away. But then it can also do those amazing panoramas. And they have the Super Cam, which is a laser microimager. So it can uh, measure the it uses a spectrometer to measure what's in material, and it can measure a point that's like a, the head of a pencil up to, I believe it's 20 feet away. It's really far. And so it has to use a laser to do that. But that way, the rover can sit there and look at things without having to drive over the scary rocks and stuff, you know. And then um, one of the big objectives of this rover is to look for past life, especially microbial life on Mars because that's probably the most likely at this point. And remember, last time they verified that for sure there was water on Mars. Now most of it's gone, it looks like. But, uh, so they have a special instrument that can look up really carefully for uh, signs of life, you know, any types of um, bacteria or anything like that. And it's going to be searching and investigating, and so they named it Sherlock, you know, kind of like Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> And then, of course, there's a camera that goes with it named Watson, right, the team. <laughs> yeah. The funny thing is Sherlock is actually an acronym. 
a lot of the names that NASA comes up with are acronyms. And it kind of makes sense because even NASA is an acronym, right? <laughs> and so uh, that, that's how they, they came up with Sherlock. And then I think Watson just came because, you know, they have to go together. <laughs> that's the way it works. Uh, one other experiment that I'm pretty excited about is, I think it's MOXIE is what they call it. And it's going to produce oxygen from Martian atmosphere. Remember, most of the air on Mars, if you want to call it that, is carbon dioxide. So they have an experiment that's going to take some of that Martian carbon dioxide and break it apart and make oxygen. And that's really important if you want to be able to breathe, right? Because otherwise you have to take all of the oxygen with you that you're going to use. But also, oxygen is a really important part of rocket fuel. If you have oxygen, then you have half of what you need to refuel a rocket right there on the surface, which is another really important thing. So they're going to demonstrate how efficiently and effectively they can produce oxygen. So that's pretty exciting. And then one of the other really big things on this rover is a system to collect samples of rock and save them for a return mission later. They have this whole mechanism where it can hold the different samples and then uh, later we can have a spacecraft come and pick those up and take them back to Earth so we can look at them in our labs and you know, use the latest technology to analyze it. But then there's my favorite part. Check this out. They're actually sending a drone, they call it a helicopter, to Mars. And they named it Ingenuity. So this rover has really got ingenuity, right? You know, that's the name. <laughs> and uh, it looks kind of different than a normal drone that we would have here on Earth. That's because the air on Mars is about 1% the density of the air on Earth. So in order to get the same amount of lift, you need much bigger propellers. Look at how huge those propellers look compared to the rest of the drone. They're pretty serious. And that's what it takes in order to get it off the air. And then it's got solar panels up on the top so it can recharge its battery because there's just nowhere to plug in there, at least not that we found yet, right? <laughs> nowhere to plug in. And uh, then after it's charged, it can fly again. And then it connects to the satellites we have going around Mars already. So uh, let's take a look at a video that kind of shows how this is going to work. The, the drone actually is going to fall out of the bottom of the rover when they're ready for it. And uh, if you look at this video, you can see how, um, is it going here? There we go. You can see how the, the rover dropped it off and then left it there. And then when it's ready, then it comes on. Wait a minute. Tobias, doesn't that look like the drone you lost? <laughs> oh, maybe not, maybe not. <laughs> but anyway, then it's going to be able to take off. And if they have a drone flying around, they can get photographs that wouldn't be possible any other way. They can learn a lot about the area around the rover and figure out which way the rover needs to go and uh, learn things that wouldn't be possible any other way. And uh, they may be able to cover a lot more ground as well. But. The batteries last about 90 seconds. Well, then we got a charge. <laughs> so it's coming. Uh, but this is experimental technology. We've never sent an aircraft to Mars before, where it's going to go to Mars and then fly around. We've always used rockets and uh, done our really, really intense landings. And that's one thing about this rover. It's going to use the same kind of landing system that they used last time. 
I think that was back in 2012. Remember how it has a heat shield when it comes into the Martian atmosphere, really intense heat to slow it down a little bit. And then the supersonic parachute comes out and the heat shield comes off and the supersonic parachute slows it down even more. And then when it gets close enough to the ground, the parachute comes off and this little sky crane turns on its little rockets and slows it down and hovers right over the ground. And then the cables come down and the rover gets lowered to the ground. And then the crane goes over and crashes somewhere and the rover's ready to drive. And if they can pull that off again, then we'll have this rover. That is such an amazing landing that it inspired our landing drill in STEM 1, if some of you kids have seen that. And so, you know, maybe in another STEM course we'll have a Martian helicopter. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? And that's all the tech we have the time for. And now it's time for Breakthroughs in Science with Tobias. Well, you could say that it all started in a coffee shop in Europe. That sounds like a French romance story. <laughs> I was eating my croissant, and I saw her. <laughs> no, okay. It's not that kind of story. Um, no, this is a story that takes place back in the 1600s. They had coffee shops back then, so they got things done, all right? <laughs> but some scientists were meeting over coffee, okay? Now, namely, there were two scientists we're going to talk about tonight. One of them, if you look at these pictures, was Robert Hooke, and he's on the left here, and then Ed Edmund Hawley on the right, okay? And there are some other scientists there as well. And they're discussing different science things that they've been working on, different theories they have. And Edmund brings up space, planets, the movement of planets, and this, this way that we don't, we don't really know how it works. How do planets stay in the path that they're moving in? How are all of these celestial spheres being held together? And is there some, what if there was like a law, a mathematical law we could find and apply to all of this? Is there something that all of this kind of falls under? Because if there was, we could start calculating things. We could start predicting the movement of all of these things. And so they're discussing this, and Robert Hooke says, well, I've already made that discovery. And Edmund's like, you did? He's like, yeah. And what will show us? And he's, well, I, don't, I would, but I don't wanna, I wanna let other scientists see if they can first. That's like the oldest one in the book, right? Of course, I guess it was so long ago the book wasn't written yet, so it's kind of like saying, that, yeah, I can open the jar. You know what? I won't let them try first. You know, I, I could do it, but let them try. And then when you try and you can't, and then somebody else opens it, you're like, I loosened it, okay. Um, but he, he says he can, but, but he never delivers. In fact, Edmund says, well, can you, why don't you get us like the documentation of the math that you were able to use to figure this out and the law, because we're pretty sure there's a force, some kind of invisible force holding this all together. And they already had theorized by now that planets orbiting things like the sun don't orbit in perfect circles. They orbit in ellipses, so like ovals. Why? I mean, if, if it's, if it's kind of like we have these two round objects, if you take a string, 
put a ball in the end and say, it's orbiting me, you know? It's gonna be a perfect circle. That string's gonna hold it there, right? So why aren't the planets doing that? So all of this stuff, there's gotta be a way to know. So unfortunately, Robert does not deliver on his, his um, statement. And Edmund is left trying to figure out how to do this. And he decides there's just no way to figure this out mathematically with the people here, with myself, definitely. And he decides to go to somebody who he thinks is the only, if there's one person that can do this, it's him. And he's hiding out over at Cambridge. And he's kind of literally hiding out because he had already made some big breakthroughs in light. And the same guy, Robert Hooke, had actually criticized him, saying that he stole his ideas. Um, so much so that his image was, he was actually hurt pretty bad by it. And so he kind of went into hiding. For 13 years, he's been at Cambridge. And so Edmund goes to Cambridge to find this guy. And his name is Isaac Newton. And he's, he's at Cambridge. And he goes to Isaac Newton, and he says, starts giving him the spill about, okay, we have these ideas. And, you know, there's got to be some way to figure this out. There's got to be, you know, what is this force? And Einstein, and Newton's like, yeah, I already figured that out. He's <laughs> like... Now, we all know, yeah, because when he was in school and school closed because of the pandemic, he went home and he figured out gravity, okay? <laughs> but what he didn't do is he didn't go publish that. He didn't go put it on paper and put it out there. He didn't, make, he didn't put it in a book. He didn't even put it on a blog, okay? <laughs> he could have just done a tweet and said, it happened, hashtag Apple has fallen. <laughs> but he didn't, okay? So as far as the world was concerned, we didn't even know. And after he published his findings about light and prisms, he kind of stopped and backed up because some people criticized him. So he hadn't told anyone, really, as far as real documentation. And so Edmund's like, this is amazing. Can you, but can, do you actually have math that you could show and share that I could show people and we could actually use this because this would be huge? And Newton says, I do, but I don't have it documented anywhere. And so he, Edmund, eventually convinces Newton after much convincing he probably I, we don't know if he brought up Robert and said you know Robert says he can do it <laughs> but one way or another Newton decides to take this on and about two months later Edmund gets in the mail these papers and inside of those papers are what we now know as Newton's laws and the law of gravity and the math behind them incredible math and that blew Edmund away he goes back and he says okay we need to publish this in a book and eventually they would make a book Edmund would really help push it through and it would become what's considered by many as the most important book in science because of these laws these principles now why is this so important well I mean okay the apple fell I could have predicted that the apple's gonna fall okay guys ready go I was right okay <laughs> what, what's the big deal well Pretty amazing stuff. The very thing that's making this apple fall is the same thing, the same law that's making Earth stay orbiting the sun. Could that be possible? And you can mathematically predict its movement, mathematically predict its path. And things like, okay, if I take a rock and throw it, I've thrown it, it goes, and it falls. Okay, if you get someone like Titus and tell him to throw the rock, it goes much further, and then it falls. <laughs> Then if you, if you could take that rock, Newton said, and shoot it so fast that it would go, 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 and by the time it starts to fall, it's already gone, start, started to go towards the edge of the Earth. Now, not the edge like it's going to fall off that way, but if Earth is round, it starts falling, and you could say it misses Earth. 
and it keeps falling, but it keeps missing Earth, it's fast enough that the gravity pulling towards Earth is actually right with the speed of that object. So it's like it's falling towards Earth, but it keeps missing. And he, he determined that if you could do that, if you could get an object up to that speed, and he even figured out what speed it would take to do that, then you would reach orbit, and you would be able to orbit. And these planets, it's not like gravity stops something in the air and says, I hold you there with gravity. It's like gravity says, get over here, and it's falling. The planets right now are falling to the sun, but they're also traveling, so they're orbiting, and they're traveling so fast that they're orbiting. And it's not that gravity holds something still up there. It's falling, but with the orbit, now we're, we're going around. And those orbits, we're not going to get into it of why they're ellipses, but often the most common kind of orbit path is an ellipse, an oval, not a perfect circle. So incredible things. I, Isaac Newton even said that if somebody someday tries to get outside of the gravity of Earth, like go to space, they would need to reach this, uh, well, they would need to surpass this speed if they were going to get into orbit or outside the orbit and this energy level to be able to escape the gravity of Earth. Pretty groundbreaking stuff. And it was published and it was, of course, by many, uh, you know, this isn't true, this is just makeup stuff. You just put a lot of numbers in it, but it was amazing. And to do this, you need some serious advanced math and Isaac Newton used what he learned in school. Wait, no, he didn't use what he learned in school. He, he used what he had made up when school was closed, this new kind of math called calculus. <laughs> and that's what he used to do this was calculus. And now it's time to prove it. How do you prove it? Well, this Edmund guy, he decides he's going to prove it. And so he uses the mathematic foundation that Newton released, and he studies the moon, and he figures out he believes, the path that the moon's going to take. And he is so bold, he puts out a little handout that says, on this day, in this hour, over London, there is going to be a solar eclipse. Wow, that's putting it on the line. And he, he publishes it, he puts it out. And he's accurate within an hour of a solar eclipse that went over London, eventually. And that blew everyone away. But then this goes on. One more proof I want to share, and that is with comets. So Edmund started to study comets. And this was something he had wanted to study way before the coffee meeting. And yet he never had the math that he needed. Well, now he starts studying these mysterious comets that all of a sudden, there's this amazing thing in the sky. And it goes by in a straight line, and it's gone. After several days, we see it in the night sky slowly going across. And then, like, 80 or 70 or 60 years later, there's another one, and the, it's just magical. What are these things? We don't really know. Well, he starts calculating the, the paths of these comets, and he starts studying the history of the different comets that they've seen. And he's the first one to say, wait a minute, like this comet that you, you've seen, and then they said they saw, and we just saw another comet a few years ago, I believe those were all the same comet. I believe that they are all one comet that is in an orbit, but an orbit that is a squished oval that goes way out and then comes back to the sun. It's orbiting the sun, but in a very long, short orbit. And then he says, and makes a very another bold prediction based on Newton's math, that he predicts in 1758, the comet that we saw in the 1600s, 
we're going to see again in 1758. Now, unfortunately, he passed away in 1742. But sure enough, in 1758, the comet appeared. And they were so blown away by it. And this was really the first comet that they looked at, saw, realizing it's a periodic comet, meaning it's going to periodically come every certain amount of time. And in this case, it was over 70 years. So they named it after Edmund Halley or Halley's Comet because this was kind of, you know, he didn't discover the comet, but he kind of did discover that this comet had been here many times before. So all based on Newton's theory. Well, it was more than a theory. Uh, well, it started as a theory, and then we started to use it to predict in ways that no one had ever done, at least accurately. So pretty amazing stuff, and, you know, that just shows you the power of coffee, you know, because <laughs> you go to a coffee shop, you never know what breakthrough is going to be waiting. What you love. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Now introducing Roger Billings. No intro, huh? <laughs> oh, hi. <laughs> um, I was going to have an intro. <laughs> oh well, I don't need an intro, do I? No, I want to. I want to tell you about someone. You know, this uh, Halley's Comet, though, needs a comment before I tell you about someone. Um, in elementary school, I read a book about astronomy, and it told about Halley's Comet, and it said what year it was coming back. And it was like a gajillion years after that <laughs> when I read it. And so I waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited because I wanted to see this super bright comet. And it finally came, and it, it was a dud. The, it broke up with the sun, and it wasn't very bright, and I, I'd waited so long for it. So here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking we need to wish up a new comet. It's been, it's been a while. So let's wish up a new comet. Aren't you ready for a new comet? Yeah. You know, around that same time, and probably inspired by the book, but I had a dream. And in my dream, I saw a really beautiful comet. It was, it was like almost as bright as the moon in my dream. You know, it's pretty little, so I didn't know how bright the moon was. But I'd like to see that comet, so why don't we wish it up, okay? Yeah, good idea. But I want to tell you now about somebody. Um, just kind of got to catch my breath because I didn't get an intro tonight. I don't think that's funny. Anyway, without an intro, I'll just get right into this. Uh, I have a, a very good friend that was one of the really amazing students here at the International Academy of Science in our doctoral program. And uh, I like to challenge people. You know, I was like that Haley guy, you know, I just say, hey, can't you do this? And I, I love to challenge people on things that are impossible. And then when they do them, they say, you've done the impossible. It's a neat thing. Well, this particular person needed a challenge. So I thought, well, you know what? You should do a project. That's what you know, graduate students do. They do projects, and they learn from doing the project. They say, you should do a project. What kind of project? A hard one. 
Okay, what should I do? I said, well, it's your project. You should figure it out yourself what you'd do. Well, give me a clue. I said, well, it could be anything you want, but how about it was something you want? There's nothing I want that I don't have. And I said, no, seriously, there's got to be something that you would really like that you can't get anywhere. Maybe you're going to invent a brand new product, and it'll be different than any other product in the world because it'll be exactly how you want it. And so this student started thinking for a minute, started thinking for a minute, and you could see when the light came on. I know what it is. I know what it is. I know exactly how I want it. And I said, good, what is it? You know, what's that look like to you? Looks like, you know, two hands stuck together. <laughs> you know, like that. Well, it's looking good. New gloves? Is it new gloves? <laughs> Well, this person went on to invent Das Boot. And as you can see, isn't it amazing? This is a personal hydrogen generator box. But inside it is the invention of my good friend. <laughs> Das Boot. Now you're going to say, hey, what's the inventing here? Well, first of all, did you notice there's a gold zipper? Mm -hmm. Pretty fancy, huh? And it also has a gold heel. Now, if you don't mind me bragging a little bit, this isn't just an ordinary hill. This is the kind of hill that's made for very, very heavy people. It is so strong. People can jump up and down and even dance in this boot. No, I'm serious. And you know this, this part here? Well, that was the toe. Because according to this student, boots are too narrow and it's bad for your toes. So this toe was custom designed on a piece of paper with a pencil. And they had to make a special tool to make it rounded and yet stylish. That's what I was told, rounded and yet stylish. And if you look right here on the zipper, it says Fire Angel. Now there's a clue, isn't it? Inside, real pigskin. Outside, real leather. Pretty stylish. So these have come to be known as Fire Angel boots. And you say, well, what's the big deal? Yeah. Actually, there are a lot of these boots walking around the world now, invented by none other than Dr. Peget. Right? <laughs> Let's hear right. it for her, okay? <laughs> now you say, well, this isn't such a big deal, but you know, it really kind of is. Because to get an idea and to create it, to have to even make your own tooling to get the shape that you want, to get it in gold, a gold zipper with your brand on it, Fire Angel, and then to be able to get them made and get them marketed, it's kind of a, a really big deal. I, uh, I think everybody has a boot idea inside them somewhere. And 
I would like to take just a minute to be a catalyst. Do you know what a catalyst is? We know what a catalyst is. It's something <laughs> that makes something happen, like a chemical reaction, without actually getting involved in the reaction. Now, I will admit I've never wore these. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that I helped inspire this. That's true. I'm, I'm really pretty sure I did. Mm -hmm. you did. And you know, uh, to me, the neatest thing about these boots is this little zipper pull that says Fire Angel. Because I'm going to make a prediction tonight. There will be a comet and an eclipse over London. Okay, no. My prediction is that this brand, Fire Angel, is going to become very well known. Fire Angel. It's kind of a different name, isn't it? And so I ask her, so what is Fire Angel? And she said, well... There's a lot of places in the world that are on fire. Yeah. I get a little emotional when I, I remember her telling me because there are a lot of people that are struggling or having hard times in their lives. And she said, I want to be the kind of a person that's there to help them. And not only do I want to be it, I want to inspire a whole bunch of people to be fire angels. I want to create a movement. And so I'm going to preempt her a little bit. So she has a movement that she's creating. And you better watch out. That's right. Because you might be moved. Well, um, <laughs> that, that's all I want to say about the boot tonight, except just like maybe put it right here. <laughs> I was wondering what this How's that? was. <laughs> Let's hear it for Don. They're actually very comfortable boots. People are worried about them. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of girls wear them to dance in. It's real fun. Okay. Make mark. Can I interrupt you for just a minute? Mm -hmm. Okay. I'd now like to introduce myself. <laughs> Her people are amazing, aren't they? How do okay, they that's do my that? favorite one. Let's keep that one. Let's stop right there. Stop right there? I like that one. Could you rewind and stop right there? <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that's good. But you know, following mark. your dreams, I think yeah. that's neat. Everybody needs to follow their dreams. Did you think you could actually be a boot designer? Oh, absolutely not. Until I talked to you. So tell, tell us your your version of this story. I was pretty close. I had my foot there I on paper. I was pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> I drew it out, and we had to get the angle, and we contacted the manufacturer, and they sent, sent, sent drawings back. We said, no, we need it like this. And the hill, yes, is for heavy people, but is, it is to withstand really walking on this earth and really living and dancing. And it's, it's for light people, too. It's for all of us. Isn't that amazing to have a hill that strong? Yeah, you gotta, you gotta be able to jump and land. Can I talk off the record? <laughs> she broke the hill. <laughs> really? Are we? I broke the anyway. Did, have you ever broken a hill? 
at a trade show nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Too it's much really, walking. really interesting. Uh, we were at a computer trade show, and uh, the boots, because of the, you know, the pigskin lining and the leather and everything, they're very, very comfortable. And so the, uh, the ladies that were working in the booth were all wearing them. Mm -hmm. And uh, someone came by and asked them what bad person made them all wear those white boots. <laughs> they did. It was me. <laughs> anyway, Make a I, mark. Yeah. I wish everybody would pick out something that they want to do and do it. There's a lot of talkers. There's a lot of people that say what they're going to do, like uh, <clears throat> the scientist that Tobias was remembering. <laughs> and then there are a few Sir Isaac Newtons. And you know, Newton is really amazing. Uh, years ago, when I was introduced to calculus, I was just amazed. Uh, what kind of a person could think that up? And <laughs> for him to be able to create that whole mathematical system is, is truly inspiring to me. Yeah. Sir Isaac Newton is one of my, um, my all-time favorite heroes. And his uh, uh, laws of, of motion, they're just beautiful. They're beautiful in, in the mathematics behind them. And actually, you don't even need calculus to be able to appreciate them. Wonderful, wonderful laws. They're a good enough reason for everybody to learn math and then take physics. So some of our students thought tonight it was interesting that it was during a pandemic, which we are kind of in right now, that he got inspired and started looking at life differently. And yeah. <laughs> well, we always have to look for the, the good, even in hard times. And on that note, I would like to... Um, just give you a quick report. You remember this last uh, weekend we had the 4th of July yeah. and uh, told you that uh, we were going to take advantage of the pandemic <laughs> because all the carnivals were closed because, you know, people weren't getting out as much. And so I said, well, do you guys need a place to set up your stuff? And they said, no, we're not going to... Uh, we're not going to open this year because, you know, there's too much going on. And one of our wonderful students who was talking to them says, well, listen, we've got a lot of budget. <laughs> she did. And, she did. Uh, and it was a she. And as it turned out, uh, she got the carnival going, and now they're off, and, and they're going to have a season after all. Mm -hmm. But I would like to share with you our 4th of July experience, uh, a lot of uh, people were able to join us, not, not as many as I would like someday to have, but I'd like to let you see the carnival. And as I show you this, please notice the backdrop behind the lights because you can see the crater. Now, a lot of us know about the crater, but the crater is a limestone crater where we have built our little uh, project we call the Shire. So watch for it in the background. Let's roll.
some remember that. <laughs> Fourth of July, um, it always brings Joseph out. And some of his jokes, I don't know. But uh, Joseph is the fireworks king. And so he showed up with his big, big box of fireworks. And uh, Tobias showed up with his drone. So what happens when you mix fireworks and a drone? Well, you get something like this. Chemistry in action. the 4th of July it was fun. and that is chemistry and it was very inspiring and very beautiful mm -hmm. and I hope all of you had a wonderful 4th of July too and that you're gonna have a wonderful year so now we need to get back to studying don't we yes and tonight I'd like to kind of focus on these boots with a realization uh, what good would math and science doing something like this? How would it be important? Uh, I, I really believe that the idea of power through knowledge is a very, very important concept. One of the uh, people that has really influenced my life is a guy named Willis Hawkins. And in fact, we're meeting tonight in a room we call the Hawk Hawkins Lecture Hall. 
And Willis um, was an interesting guy. Early in his career, he was hired by uh, the Army, United States Army, and was involved in the early conceptual design of the, the Sherman tank. And then he went on into aviation. And he was hired to work under a guy named Kelly Johnson in the Skunk Works at Lockheed. And they were responsible for making some really, really remarkable airplanes. Willis went on to become the president of the Lockheed California Company and the director of NASA. And he's one of the five founders of this International Academy of Science. Um, I think uh, sometime I'm going to share some footage of, of Dr. Hawkins, a really, really, really amazing person, an amazing scientist. But uh, <clears throat> there came a time in his life when he became um, somewhat ill and they determined that he needed bypass surgery on, on his heart. That's where some of the, the veins around the heart become constricted. And so they actually go in and surgically make repairs. And in, in his case, he had to do a quad bypass. That means they had to fix four of his veins and pretty severe surgery. And I had scheduled a trip to Los Angeles to go meet with some people that he wanted to introduce me to. And, and so I knew we'd have to postpone the trip. But 10 days after the surgery, he called me up and he said, now you're still gonna be here, aren't you, next week? And I said, well, no, I'm gonna give you some time to recover. He said, no, I'm all better. They, <laughs> they bypassed and I'm ready to go. So just a little bit over two weeks after his open heart surgery, we were driving around California going to look at these various uh, technologies. And one of the places that we went that day was to look at the SR-71, mm. the very, very high altitude uh, Mach 3, three times the speed of sound um, spy plane. And this plane traveled so fast that it got so hot from the friction of air that it couldn't be made out of normal materials like aluminum alloys, etc. It had to be made out of an element called titanium. And titanium is, is extremely hard to machine. It's very brittle, and so they had to develop a lot of amazing new technologies. Willis and this team at the Skunk Works, uh, especially this Kelly Johnson, were responsible for many, many amazing technologies in, in aviation. And the, the reason that we went to see this plane where they were actually still manufacturing it was because uh, Willis really wanted to convert an airplane to hydrogen so that we would be able to take advantage of laminar flow. And remember, laminar flow is a way of having air flow over an airplane over the wing of an airplane. And if it's nice and smooth, it's called laminar flow. If it's not laminar, then it's turbulent flow. It means there's a lot of turbulence. When there's turbulence over an aircraft wing, and by the way, the turbulence usually comes off the wing and it's behind, but if there's turbulence, it causes drag. So it takes a lot more power to power the airplane. 
And we've, we've tried for a long time to figure out how to make a wing that would give lift without causing all this turbulence. And then there was a, a guy at NASA, NASA Lewis in Ohio, that uh, came up with an idea that if you cool the front edge of the wing of an airplane to extremely cold temperatures, like 300 degrees below zero, colder than any place on Earth. But if you could do that, that it would super cool the air coming up over and it would make it have laminar flow. Of course, how do you cool air that much? And so we got the idea, we know how to. You fill the tank with liquid hydrogen. Hydrogen liquefies at 422 degrees below zero. So if you just ran the hydrogen through a heat exchanger on the front of the wing, it would cool it down and then we could use it to fuel the airplane. Now that, that has another advantage. Hydrogen is much lighter than jet fuel for the same amount of energy. And whenever you make an airplane lighter, that makes it carry more load or go further. But if we could eliminate this turbulence, we could double the range of how far it could fly on a charge of fuel. Or we could cut the fuel in half and cut down the price of, of the fuel. And especially on very, very fast airplanes the lightweight of hydrogen make a big difference. So our idea was to use one of these Blackbirds as a prototype because it was the plane that needed the laminar flow almost more than any other airplane. And I have to tell you, it was really a thrill to go into that historical place. And they had a whole bunch of, must have been at least seven Blackbirds all lined up on, wow. on a little assembly line there where they were put them together. They're amazing, amazing airplanes. They're big, aren't they? They are big, wow. and yet there's just one pilot. And the, the plane gets so hot that when it's flying, it elongates. It gets noticed belongs almost uh, red hot because of the temperature. Temperature so high that if it were, like I say, normal, normal materials, it would make them very weak and the plane would break up. Interesting thing. I'm very intrigued by supersonic flight. Mm -hmm. uh, the SR-71, like I said, would travel at Mach 3. That's three times the speed of sound, which means it's almost 3,000 miles an hour. And at 3,000 miles an hour, you can take off from the United States and land over in Tokyo in about four hours. And you can, uh, actually that's Mach 2, so you could probably do it in about three hours. It's really, really amazing. You go from LA to New York in, you know, in a half hour with some of these high-speed planes. And now some of the scientists at NASA are designing conceptually transports that would go much faster than Mach 3, maybe even Mach 10 or, or faster. Just imagine taking off from L.A. and landing in New York in 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. It's kind of exciting, isn't it? Uh, these kinds of technologies are now becoming possible, and yet they're not going to happen because nobody is willing to stand up and make their dream come true. And of course, I hope that's really not the case. I think that the, the whole secret of progress in science but in, in life comes from getting a good idea, doing your homework to find out if it's right, learn what you need to know, 
And then if it all lines up, then go for it. Make it happen. And it really helps when you have someone who encourages you, though. Because I, I wouldn't have pursued that this unless I had you to say, you know what? You're yeah. the boot? <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. That's good. And um, it's, it's very true. Well, one of the stories that has always been very, very intriguing to me is the story about breaking the sound barrier. And we talk about it like it's a barrier, and it really was. Mm -hmm. Whenever airplanes would get up close to the speed of sound, uh, something very strange would happen, and all of a sudden the airplane was, would lose lift, and it'd start shuddering, and it'd start falling out of the sky. And it was, it was kind of terrifying. Uh, the British were really some of the leaders in getting airplanes up to where they could break the sound barrier, and they even built an airplane that probably was capable of doing it, but they didn't really know what to expect. They didn't know what was going to happen. And so they, they paused. They stopped the program for a little while so they could just study, you know, what are we doing? This, this could cause someone to get hurt. Meanwhile, the X-1 in the U.S. Uh, took off and broke the sound barrier, and then a lot of people there were really disappointed because they were ahead, but, you know, someone... Uh, had the faith and the courage to go out and get the job done. Once they pushed through the sound barrier, then it was smooth flying. Then they had lift again. They just had to go through that speed. And you said, well, why? Why is that? If you could yell, and, and of course you can, but if you could <laughs> yell and your sound's going out, what if you could run as fast as a, as a jet as fast as sound is traveling. And so you could keep hearing the sound go out from you because you're staying right with it. And what if while you were staying with it, you kept yelling? Now the yell from back there is right at your ears, plus you're yelling now, so it's getting louder and louder and louder. And that's what happens with the jet. As they get up near the speed of sound, all of the noise coming out is building up and up and up because they're keeping up with it and making new sound. And that sound becomes such a shock wave that as it goes over the airplane, it, it tries to crush the airplane. And in fact, some of the early ones that did actually crush the airplane. They had to make them much stronger. But then once they push through that shock wave, then it just shores and they could go twice the speed of sound. When they got up around two and a half to three times the speed of sound, the airplane started getting very, very hot. So they had to do new materials. Of course, we've gone faster than that now just by going into outer space where there's no air, so the, the air hitting against the airplane didn't make it hot. And it would be a long ways to the moon or Mars if we didn't go a lot faster than three times the speed of sound. So I think it's neat. It's neat. But here's the point. Knowledge is the power to do things remarkable. And... Uh, just a couple weeks ago, uh, I got really interested in a new thing. And I'm, I'm going to save telling you the details of the new thing till I have a little more to show. But it was a new thing that I couldn't do with any science I've ever learned. And, you know, when you think about how much science there is to learn, there was more science invented today around the world than I could ever learn. 
It's just growing so fast. There's just so much to learn. But I could not do my project with anything I'd ever studied or learned before, and so I decided I'm going back to school. And so I did, and I started reading, I started studying, and fortunately, as I've done this many, many times throughout my career, every time I learn something, it seems like I get a little bit better at learning. Uh, I would say that in general, I was growing up kind of an average to slow learner. Math was hard. In fact, I thought, you know, I could never do anything in science until I read that Einstein said he struggled with math. <laughs> Maybe I'm Einstein-like, I don't know, <laughs> but I did, and I kept at it. I've really enjoyed learning this new subject. Uh, there's a lot about it that is just shocking to me. And the, the thing that I've been studying, I will tiptoe in and tell you, is about DNA and about how it duplicates itself and that whole process. That's something I've never really delved into. The first I got into it when, was when we were going to talk about wheat a couple of weeks ago, and I thought, you know, I should go find out a little bit about it, especially if I'm going to talk. But then as I started learning about it, I became very intrigued, and now I'm finding that it has application in many, many places in the research that I would like to do. My point isn't that you should study DNA or that you should raise wheat, even though that would be a good idea. But my point is that these courses that we're doing in Acellus are intended to empower you to be able to do great things. Right now we're filming AP Chemistry, mm -hmm. and we're filming the special Mark Rogers edition of third grade math, which I am so excited about. These are courses that are going to help people understand these concepts. It's going to take effort. Not even Mark Rogers can make it easy. You have to work, but he can make it fun. And more important than that, he can make it doable. You can learn it. And the, the thing that I wish so much to convey to you tonight is that it's worth it. It's worth whatever effort you have to make to learn because it's going to empower you to make boots, Mm -hmm. or to make the X one and break the sound barrier, or wherever your imagination and your ambition takes you. And that's really what I want most out of these little talks that we have once a week, is I want you to know just what Bill Lear taught me. You can. And you can because you're willing to do the hard work and because you believe you can. So with that, I want to wish everybody a good night. And We'll, we'll now take the next 20 minutes for the final words from Dr. Ben. <laughs> I, I just want to second my chair forward with your words. I think it is an important time, and I think really believing that you can do it, there are going to be obstacles. It's going to be fun. It's going to be hard, and um, I think most of it is attitude. The real attitude is what we take life on with really determines on what kind of life we're going to live. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. Thank you. Uh, closing image, I want to show you this brand new cells poster we've got. This particular one is uh, 
our robot that we showed last week. Yeah. It's the two of them. Mm-hmm. And remember the little dancing robot. I really, really want everybody to learn how to code. And so we're going to have the biggest dance contest this coming school mm-hmm. year we've ever, ever had. So if you haven't enrolled in the STEM course, you need to do that. And uh, we're going to have enough robots for everybody. We did get a, well, we didn't get it, but we ordered um, a brand new machine that will increase our ability to make robots by about, no, a thousand fold. So we're going to need a lot of people making or using robots this next year. So that's going to be a poster we're going to offer in a little while. We're going to offer it, huh? Yeah. Yeah, this is the newest Acellus poster. It'll be in the in the Cellus store, but it, yeah. we're also sending these out to schools, so mm-hmm. when you go to school, you'll be all inspired. Mm-hmm. You can learn STEM. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, and good night. Well, thank you all for joining us tonight. We'll see you next week. Have a great night.